blockchains were the first systems to allow guaranteed permanent storage of public data. As cryptocurrency technology has advanced, a rich ecosystem of permanent storage and compute has developed as well. One of these is Arweave, a system for permanent information storage. Sam Williams is a founder of Arweave and joins the show to talk through how Arweave works and his motivation for starting it. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. We've done many shows about various cryptocurrency-related technologies, and one thing that is obvious about cryptocurrency is the permanence of data. Typically, it's financial data, but there's a more general use case for compute-related data, storage data. And the coverage of that that we've done has typically been of IPFS, which is a object storage system. And you run Arweave, which is a newer type of storage that has permanence associated with it. Can you explain what the data permanence problem that you're trying to solve with Arweave is? Yeah, so... The thing about IPFS is, is, is in the name, it's a file system, right? So in the same way that NTFS or EXT3 or EXT4 on your machine is an addressing system for finding a piece of data, it doesn't store the piece of data for you. This is a bit of a quite common miscomprehension with IPFS. And so Arweave is taking this different approach. Arweave wants to be the physical hard drive, if you will, for permanent data storage. And essentially works in by solving two problems. First, we, we scale blockchains so that you can fit arbitrary amounts of data inside them directly. And the second, we, we created an endowment structure, which we can get into later, I'm sure, which essentially pays for the storage of that data perpetually in a sustainable fashion. So that's really what Arweave is focused on. It's, it's focused on true data permanence. So the lowest level of storage, is it just laid out in in hard drives or is it on replicated object storage? Can you give me, let's like work up from the lowest level. (laughs) Yeah. So it's on hard drives, physically distributed around the world. And you can essentially imagine it like Bitcoin, but you replace the proof of work mechanism with useful proof of storage. And so essentially what we're doing is instead of guessing random numbers, and checking whether, you know, hashed, they, they have this mathematical property. What we do instead is ping the data, poll the data set. And so the more of the data set that you store, the more likely you are to have this random challenge byte, which is requested when you take part in the mining process. And so we're constantly stochastically checking this data set and incentivizing miners to host as much of the data set as they can. In the same way that Bitcoin, you know, works by decentralizing this network around the world. And and the upshot of what you get is a decentralized storage network with thousands of replicas of the data set. Yeah, physically distributed across the world with no single centralized point of failure. So is the access pattern similar to any other storage system you can describe? Or is the, like, maybe you could talk about the API for reading and writing to Arweave and and describe the path to a read and write? Yeah, so there's, there's two approaches that people typically take here. The first is that they they use the network sort of um, first class, like they, they, they access it directly. And that feels a little bit like you're using BitTorrent. So you become part of the swarm and you swap data with other participants in the network. 
But the typical way that people access data in Arweave is via a gateway. And that makes the information available via HTTP, or HTTPS, obviously. And that's really interesting because it enables what we call the permaweb, which is all of this data, like 150 million documents, stored inside the system, available to anyone's web browser all across the world indefinitely. That's not just like documents of the ilk of text or or videos or, or images, but also full web applications themselves. And then some of these gateways index the data set, creating a sort of queryable database that you can access via GraphQL. And when you add all of this stuff together, what you end up with is a, a total stack for permanent decentralized web applications to be built, which is really, really powerful because it allows you to create applications that essentially have no controller. And they're sort of like Ethereum's code is law for smart contracts, but we just apply that whole mechanism to web applications which enables many, many different really powerful applications to be built. If I want to deploy a database that is backed by Arweave, what do I have to do? Something that people do is, you know, they just run a Postgres database and then they'll make a dump to the network and then they'll have other nodes that can read out those dumps over time and sort of use that as essentially a synchronization layer, decentralized synchronization layer across nodes operating your database. That's, That's one approach. Another approach is to use Arweave's native, or at least the gateway's native GraphQL interface, where you just you write data to the network, like you're creating a transaction. So the user just signs a piece of data, it has certain tags associated with it, and those get inserted into this, this massive database the gateways are maintaining. You can just query those back and say, for example, hey, give me every tweet from your know, post on a Twitter-like system, which has an app named this between this and this time from this user. Or, or something like that. And so that way you can build up typical looking web applications, but they're completely decentralized in the back end. And would I need to stand up some kind of caching system for it to be to have fast access if I have a database that's backed by Arweave? It depends. So right now the simple answer is no. You could use a gateway that is open like Arweave.net. And the idea is that these gateways over time create monetary relationships with their users such that essentially the, the cost is accruing there. That can be offset by basic things like you know, so showing an ad one in every 50 times you access a web page or something like that, or a basic subscription model or a pay-as-you-go model, or the developer could make a relationship with a gateway where they pay for their users' usage on behalf of those users. There's really like a ton of different ways that you can monetize that relationship in order to deal with the cost of compute, essentially. Tell me more about the consensus mechanism for Arweave. Yeah, so the consensus mechanism is something we call succinct proofs of random access, which is a bit of a mouthful, but what it basically means is a a small way of proving access to a very large data set polled at random. And what happens there is a challenge is generated for a block, so you, you try and make a, a candidate block in the system. You're a miner. You're storing all of this data. You take all of that, or the last, the hash of the last block, and you generate a new sort of, say, derivative hash from the current block that you're trying to mine. You mix that with a random number, a nonce. And that will give you, together, a randomly generated, a pseudo-random, of course, the generated place in the data set. So a single byte. And the game is just, go fetch that byte for me, please. And you bring it back, and then you get all of that, you hash that together 
And the output of that has to satisfy a, essentially a proof of work puzzle in the same way that Bitcoin does. So you're looking for something where the output is over or under a certain value. And that would be the, the difficulty. But of course, what's happening here is that the more of the data you have, the more likely that randomly chosen byte is within the data set that you hold. So that's one component. And the second component is the faster you can get access to that data, the faster you can read it from the disk, um, the higher your, we call it a spora rate, not really a hash rate. But if you're comparing it to Bitcoin, it would be a hash rate. And how does the, like the, the mining, the proof system compare to proof of work or proof of stake? You can think of it like proof of useful work essentially, where that useful work is maintaining the data set. Yeah, I, th I think that's the easiest way of thinking about it. It has the same useful properties of proof of work that you can validate that time or at least effort has elapsed when you look back at the chain, which is the big complaint people have about proof of stake, of course, which is that if you come to the chain after 10 years and you're presented with it, well, it, you don't really know that it wasn't forged in the past. So there's this sort of permanent, honest majority requirement for proof of stake. And this, this isn't to slander proof of stake or, or to, uh, to promote proof of work. I, I'm sort of agnostic on the question. But for our case, it was just useful to have a proof of work system that did something helpful for the network, in which you know, the network only really has one job, which is maintaining the data set. So we were able to use that work usefully to achieve that end. Why did you need a new proof system like why not just reuse one of the proof systems that has already been used for i don't know ipfs or or bitcoin well ipfs doesn't have a proof system nor does it have blocks it's just a we call it distributed hash table so it's a way of routing if you go to a single ipfs node and say hey i'm looking for this hash it will sort of direct you to the next node that will be likely to tell you where you can get it until you get to the to the data. It's based on something called Kademlia from the 1990s, more or less. So it's a, IPFS doesn't have, have a proof system at all. Bitcoin, well, I mean, it's really just wasting energy fundamentally. It's a game of who can waste the most energy for the amount of Bitcoin that's going to be produced. And well, I suppose the answer is twofold. So the first is we didn't want to do that because that's, <laughs> that's just fundamentally, you know, I, I, I used to be uh, friends with Joe Armstrong, the creator of Erlang, and he told me once, that's just not what we should be doing in the world. <laughs> and he's right. We shouldn't just be wasting energy like that. There's got to be better things we can do with it. And it turns out one of those better things is storing data. So that's part of it. And the other part is, if we used a basic proof of work or even proof of stake, we would still be left with this question of, well, how do we prove that there are replications of the data set out there? And so we kind of tie those two, if you will, incentives, imperatives, really, for us together and, and come up with this one solution, which is a useful proof of work. And so with a succinct proof of random access, can you describe how the proof is distributed through the network of miners? So if, so if I have, you know, one random access that needs to get proven and distributed to all the other miners, what's the like time to finality and, and just how does that distribution work? Yeah, so once you've found a candidate block, it works very much like Bitcoin. So you get that proof, and they're succinct in the sense that no matter how large the data you're proving access to, the chunk that you have to move around is at maximum 256 kilobytes. So that gets packaged up with a candidate block that you created, and then gets gossiped around the network, just like in Bitcoin. 
to other miners that can take it and they say, okay, does this validate? And if it does, everyone accepts it, they move to the next block and the mining game continues. If I'm a miner, how does my incentive system, like if compared to something like Bitcoin, in terms of earnings, how does it compare? Well, that's the interesting thing about cryptocurrency mining is that the answer simply is it fluctuates, right? So what crypto mining does at a basic level is say, okay, my budget for, in the case of Bitcoin, simply security of, what you say, finality of transactions, but in the case of Arweave, finality of transactions and also the security of the data set is determined by this number of tokens that I'm willing to emit during this time period. And what will happen is more miners will join the network until that is essentially saturated, such that it's down to opportunity cost. And and after that, no more miners will join the network. And perhaps the cost fluctuates. and, And after time, some miners will leave, then other miners will join and so on. So we're just sort of doing there. And we actually use this in the system. It's quite interesting. As an approximation of the price of Arweave tokens. So, so there's this big question, right? Imagine you've got this storage system. Okay, it, it looks like it makes sense, but you've got this problem that, well, if the token price increases, and of course it's completely variable, so it will increase or decrease, how do you keep the price of storage stable? Right, that, that's a fundamental issue. And the answer cannot be, well, we have a, um, I'm not sure if you've spoken about this much on a podcast before, but the answer can't be that we rely on some centralized oracle. So we don't get the data from somewhere in the external world, if you will, outside the network, and just kind of trust it. Because as as we saw during the 2018-2019 rise of DeFi, it was oracle-based attacks. So attacks on those estimations of what the prices of tokens were that led to most of the hacks in DeFi. So we didn't want to do that. What we figured we could do instead is say, okay, well, at time step zero, we can benchmark and say, we've got the present price of the token, the amount of work that is going into producing a block, and the number of tokens that are being emitted from that block. We can take a few of these timestamps if we want to set the benchmark rate. And then at timestamp N, we can say, okay, so the network is out in the wild now. We don't know the present price of Arweave tokens, and we don't want to trust the outside world to tell us. So what we can do instead is say, okay, well, we know the amount of work going into producing blocks, and we know the amount of tokens that are being emitted from blocks. And from these two factors, we can infer essentially the third factor, or at least a heuristic for the third factor, which is how much are the tokens costing? And in fiat money, or or at least in a, you could say, a value-stabilized version relative to the, the value of fiat at the time that the benchmarks were taken. And then once you've got this, you can use it to normalize the price of storage. And so we do this quite effectively, and it's been in production for three years now. So we don't have to have this external oracle, which can be hacked. The network can just guess its own token price, essentially. So if I'm a miner, is there any particular constraint on what I need in terms of hardware or like, how can I contribute productively to the network? How does, how does that compare to, is it the same kind of like, typically like GPU related hardware that miners are using? Yeah, not, not so much. The, the interesting thing is that it's, so we, for a start, we, we worked with the Monero team a couple of years ago to build this new hashing algorithm. It's actually pretty interesting. It's called RandomX. And basically the question was, how can we make it so that a hashing algorithm 
is CPU bound. Because of course the problem is, you know, CPUs are general purpose, right? So if you have a specific type of compute, like a SHA-256 hash or an ETH hash, then presumably you can create a CPU, which is a more effective physical device for computing just that particular workload than a general purpose device. And so this led to the creation of these ASICs, you know, specialized mining hardware, essentially in the, in the Bitcoin mining community way back in 2013. And we were trying to make it so that mining in Arweave and, and sure enough, the Monero team were thinking the same way. Mining in Monero was, uh, would you say, as accessible as possible. Uh, people with normal hardware should be able to commit that hardware and, and be rewarded somehow for, for the, that commitment. And so we realized that the, or actually the Monero team realized that the way to do this is to make the compute involved with the hashing algorithm itself, general purpose computation. So they built a super cool system, which is kind of like a, a small virtual machine layer on top of x86 hardware, where they generate these random programs for it. And it just stretches all of the parts of the CPU such that if you were to try and build a specialized piece of hardware that is faster at computing that component, you would actually just end up building a faster general purpose CPU. So that was a really, really neat innovation they made, and we we worked with them on that, and we deployed it for the hashing part of our system. Other than that, what you need is just a hard hard drive of some kind, and the faster and the bigger, the better. It's a kind of trade-off between how much you're willing to pay for speed versus how much you get capacity-wise. But that, that essentially means that anyone with good SSDs and a good CPU can contribute to the system. So that general purpose algorithm, I guess what you're saying is it it just levels the playing field for all kinds of CPUs to, to participate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And geographically levels the playing field too, because well, we saw this mass migration of uh, Bitcoin miners middle of last year, right? But before that, 87% of the hardware that was capable of doing SHA-256 hashes at speed was located physically in China, which for a network like ours, which is trying to be a neutral, permanent ledger of history, that you know, that's obviously a problem. You want a geographic distribution. And of course, general purpose x86 CPUs are fairly well geographically distributed, not so much in you know, Africa, fortunately, but at least in most of the rest of the world, there is strong spread of this technology. So when you talk about the application layer on top of Arweave, you call it the permaweb, and that's documents and applications that are permanent. So I guess I'd like to get a better understanding of of how that permanence works. You know, if if you think about S3, you know, you have a document on S3, it's replicated to three at least three places. And if one of the servers gets knocked out, the document gets gets replicated to another server. So maybe you can talk about the resilience of the underlying Arweave storage layer and what happens if, or, or I guess just outline a little bit more about how that storage system works. Like, is it sharded or, you know, just talk about the distribution and what happens if nodes fail? Yeah, absolutely. So with Arweave, I mean, you don't replicate the data to three places. You replicate it right now to somewhere in the high hundreds to low thousands of places. So it's very, very, very well distributed. Probably, I don't know if it's the most well distributed data set in the world. There's an argument to say like Constitution or the Bible is, is, is much more well distributed. But certainly for a 
a data storage system that the end user can access today. It is the most well-replicated data set that you can, you can add your data to freely. So, so that's part of the power of the system. I would say that you know, relative to Amazon S3, and this is why we started it as a network, not as a, you know, another way to do this might've been as a foundation, right? A nonprofit foundation or a, or a company even. The reason that we did it as a network is because you can trust the math isn't going to change its business model. Math is immutable. That's really powerful because, you know, you can store your data with S3 today, but the problem is you have no idea what S3's business model is going to be five years from now let alone like 20 years. And you know, what Arweave is really focused on is building a record of history. So if you want to, if you, for example, so there's people in our community that have contributed 13, maybe 14 million documents from the Ukraine crisis and, and the war, unfortunately now, to the network. Those documents is really powerful if they're around for hundreds of years, not just tens of years. And there's absolutely no way if you put those on Amazon S3, that you can be confident that Amazon isn't going to change its business model. It almost certainly will. So in the same way that you can be confident that Bitcoin won't change its business model, it's always going to have 21 million tokens. And that's that's the end of the game, right? You can say the same of Arweave. Arweave has this, this storage layer, which is going to pay miners in order to store the data. And no one can ever change that. You don't have to trust a company. You don't have to trust a board of trustees in a foundation. You don't have to trust anyone. You just trust the math. And, and to speak to the math, it's like, okay, well, this is all pretty interesting, but how on earth do you pay for like permanent data storage, right? That's a ever continual cost for a single fee. How can that possibly work? And, and the answer is essentially to create an endowment structure. So in the same way that like a university might put aside a very large amount of money and then gain interest on that money and use that interest to pay for university uh, tuition for students, we essentially do the same thing, but with data storage. So when you put a piece of data into Arweave, you pay for 200 years worth of storage of that data at present prices upfront. Sounds like a lot. Actually, storage is so cheap nowadays, that's like a cent a megabyte, something like that. You know, maybe it's expensive if you're storing 8K video or something like that. Uh, but you know, for almost all kinds of documents that people really care about, it's actually fairly cheap. It's, it's affordable. So, so that's the base. And then at, over time, as the cost of storage declines, that storage purchasing power you've got, let us say, 200 years, at the end of year one, you've used one year, so you think it's 199 years, but actually the cost of storage has declined. And it typically declines at a rate of about 30%, or at least has done for the last 50 years. But we, we expect a rate of 0.5%. So if it stays above 0.5%, at the end of any given year, you end up with more storage purchasing power than when you started. And essentially, that's your interest in the form of storage purchasing power. Yes, and so through this system, you know, the, the network can pay for storage for hundreds, if not thousands of years from this point, uh, far beyond the lifetime of the network, where it will eventually be, you know, replaced by some other sort of protocol achieving a similar thing would be my expectation. And then the hope is that, you know, the cost of storage is so cheap at that point that someone just copies across the Arweave because it's an interesting data set into whatever new storage system and the, and the system goes on. That's a broad, broad I suppose, outline of how the system works, why it's a network, and, and how the endowment works. So can you tell me a little bit more about the APIs that sit on top of that high volume of storage? And uh, you know, if I want to request a document or an image from that storage layer, what happens? Yeah, I mean, typically you would use gateway for that. So you just go to arweave.net or 
gateway.rdrive.io or wherever the gateway is located, stroke, and then your TX ID, and then you just get the data back. And it just feels like HTTP. If you want to write data to the network, you probably use a library. I mean, it's a protocol in the same way that you know, HTTP is a protocol. So you don't want to <laughs> don't want to interact with it directly. Typically, you want to have a library on top. And those libraries, you know, they say create transaction, and every piece of data in Arweave is a transaction. It can have as many tags as you want, which are kind of metadata, if you will. And then you give it a body, which is the document. It's kind of like a document store in that sense. And then you just sign it, and then you just press send, basically, or you rather call send. And then it goes to the network, and, and if you have um, tokens to pay for it or some other forms of payment, then it just works. And we're currently subsidizing all transmissions to the network under 300 kilobytes. So you don't even have to have any tokens in your wallet if you want to if you want to store something under that amount, at least for the moment. And there's many ways that you can uh, you can pay otherwise. Right. And I think it's worth talking a little bit at this point about why this is a useful exercise to make a permanent web. It seems like censorship at the storage layer doesn't really happen that often. I mean, I guess people lose things in the web like if i don't pay for my for my storage then i lose it over time so this in a sense amortizes storage across the entire network such that i don't ever lose my photos you don't have the yeah yeah, you you paid for the endowment so you don't need to worry like there's no further payments required from your side you're just generating interest from your contribution to the endowment and that's paying for your storage but i think that actually stuff does get censored from the web all the time might not be so much in the west or it might not be so noticeable in the west but certainly for example in china in china right. it, all the time and so a lot of the uses for the network are sort of aimed at places where they have authoritarian regimes as the local power structure for example it was used in in hong kong to back up apple daily uh, one sort of pro-democracy newspaper that was very prominent there and then the authorities came along and just started stealing the data fundamentally but fortunately there are a bunch of activists who were able to capture some of that and start uploading it to the network and now there's this archive of 13 or 14,000 pages from Apple Daily inside the permaweb and of course that's distributed all around the world and so it's very very difficult for the Chinese government if they wanted to to remove access to that data they would have to it's kind of like whack-a-mole you would have to block every address and the addresses are ever changing pretty annoying (laughs) relative to well we just in the case of Apple Daily, it just seized a server, and that was the end of it. So that's just one example. But I, but I do think that censorship does happen reasonably frequently at the level of services around the world. Another example being Weibo. In, in China, back at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic in about February, there was this outcry for freedom of speech on Weibo from users that wanted to well, they wanted to express their displeasure with the Chinese Communist Party fundamentally. But of course, they, they were getting censored left and right by the, by the powers that be there. And so they didn't have a platform where they could speak freely, frankly. And again, some people in our community started archiving data from Weibo inside the, the Arweave network. And then they built a uh, perm web app on top, so a full you know, web application. And it, it ran in the way that I was describing previously where you could ask it, hey, can you find me everything that's been censored on Weibo? Which is really fascinating. 
So they found a way of flagging old data that had been censored. And yeah, they, they called it way blocked. And it was just an index of the censored things. And of course, that was available from many different user interfaces or from many different locations on the web and many different addresses. And so very, very hard to block access to that. I, I could go on, but I, I think these are some good examples. But well, I mean, to the more fundamental point, why build something like this in the first place? The simple answer is that archives haven't improved technologically for around a thousand years. And technology has improved dramatically in that time. So why haven't they improved? And I think that we can now build a library of Alexandria that is impervious to fire, flood, and government censorship in a really pretty profound way that just wasn't possible before. And I think blockchains, blockchains had the seed of that, right? You, you mentioned how they replicate data all around the world and they, you know, the ledger all around the world, and they don't have single centralized points of failure, but they didn't scale. So we, we solved that problem with the mining system I described. And there was no incentive system for replicating all parts of the data. And so we solved that with the endowment system. And that was essentially how the network came together. The thing is, so granted, yeah, there is definitely censorship. I shouldn't have given such a Western-centric point there. Aren't they still going to censor at the application level? If they want to censor something, they still can censor it at the application level. I guess the point is just that you're building uncensorable storage and other people will build uncensorable compute layers. Well, to find, I'm not quite sure how you're separating up the stack because we see that almost all compute related to like basic web applications is more or less database queries, right? It's like create, read, update, delete, runs, runs web two in some non-trivial proportion. And, and that is sort of inside the system, but those compute in that sense runs inside the gateways as described. And there are many of those across the world. You certainly can as a developer, if you want to add a sort of censorship layer on top, that's totally fine. Uh, the point with the Perm Web app is that after something is launched, the relationship between developer and user cannot change. Or rather, the developer might release a new version, but users aren't forced to upgrade to that new version. And so there's sort of what we call platform integrity guarantees built in. Once you have access to a version of an application, it's what you see is what you get forever. They can issue a new version and you can upgrade if you want to, but no one can force you to. And, and that new version might have, you know, some form of censorship on top, and that, that might be appropriate for the application you're building. But everybody knows what the deal is that they're getting into when they start using an application. It, putting censorship aside for a moment, you can see why this is important if you think about something like email. So in the case of Gmail, when I signed up for my Gmail account in like 2007, whenever it was, I had no idea what Google's privacy policy would be in 2022 or whether they would be showing me adverts or you know, selling my data to people. Who knows? It was, it's totally up to them. But my identity got locked into that service, and it was forcibly upgraded without my, without my request. Whereas if you use Permamail on top of Arweave, it's got a user interface today. You can see it and say, okay, it's, it's, uh, it's fine enough. I guess I could use this for a decade. And it's just never going to change. If it doesn't sell your data today, it's not going to sell your data tomorrow. Uh, DMAC, the, the guy from our community that built it, he could come along and say, okay, here's a new version with ads. Go, go use it, guys. But you don't have to. And so the deal that you're making between user and developer is set in stone at the time the thing is launched. And it can only be modified essentially by consent. 
of the users if they decide to upgrade. Does that make sense? Totally. I guess, you know, when I was commenting on the censorship, I was just, you know, imagining, you know, if I'm Apple, Apple Daily or whatever the, the censor-worthy site is, you know, the user makes a request to Apple Daily's servers and the if I'm the Chinese government, I can censor at Apple Daily's servers, right? Like I, I always have access to that centralized point. So my point is like, unless you have the users directly routing to decentralized infrastructure, there's going to be a, a point where you can censor, right? Well, AppleDaily.com is down. So the, the archivists put the data on the network. You don't go to Apple Daily anymore. It doesn't go anywhere. It's, it's useless. Okay, okay. Instead, you would go to a permaweb address for either an item from the network or a user interface built on top that sort of uh, aggregates the items that are stored in the network. Got it. Okay. So does the user need a new kind of browser to do that? No, no, no. They, they would just go to an Arweave gateway, like Arweave.net or you know, gateway.rdrive.io or, or whichever one you want. And then the address that they want to get to, the, the TX ID, we call it, transaction ID, essentially. Got it. So so China would have to censor the entire Arweave network in order to censor anything on it. Essentially, and that would mean censoring an ever an ever morphing network, if you will. Like new servers come online, old servers go offline all the time. It's part of the natural, which is a life cycle of the network. So it's it's an ever changing beast, which is much, much harder to hit than of course something like AppleDaily.com where you go to where that server points to and you go seize the hard drives and and there you go. Okay. And there's no like universal TLD where they could just cut it off at that at that point. Yeah, the the whole premise of the system is not to make a single centralized point of failure of any kind. Very cool. So since we're nearing the end of our time, let's let's zoom out. When you look at the Web3 stack as a whole, it kind of seems like all the lower level building blocks are there at this point. We've got compute, we've got storage, we've got decent user interfaces. I guess maybe MetaMask leaves something to be desired. What are the weak points in Web3 infrastructure? And like, where is the tipping point where Web3 maybe becomes the default for deployment of applications? Those are two separate but very interesting questions. So if you don't mind, I'll address them individually. What are the weak points? I, I think you're, you're right in assessing that the base infrastructure is more or less here now. Like if you want to build a decentralized, you know, I, I bought into the Ethereum ICO because I, I wanted to use Ethereum as, as it was stated on the website, as the world computer. Like I wanted to host my website on this thing. I thought that would be really cool. It didn't exist at the time. Ethereum never became that. But now, like eight years later, that, that infrastructure does exist. If you would like to build a decentralized web application, it's like top to bottom decentralized, not just a smart contract, then you absolutely can. I would say the weak point is to some extent, we're really starting to very aggressively you know, address this now in the Arweave ecosystem. It, it's reaching Web2 developers with this message. And yeah, I'm bringing them into the fold. So it, it's only in the last six months or so that the infrastructure has really matured to the point that people can just build on this easily. And there's simple ways to do all of the important things that you would be doing when you're building a web application. Uh, so now we're kind of pivoting into that like hyper-focused and aggressive adoption strategy phase. And so what we're doing there is 
we're running this program that basically says, okay, well, we want to fund the next thousand founders building on top of the Arweave network. And we want to take them through this simple funnel where they start off as like, you know, someone working as a, at a job in a Web2 company, and they end up running their own project in build, building on the permaweb, uh, which is funded and they have a team and so on. And we start by like introducing people to like how you build a hello world, take them through a tutorial for how they build these applications, meet the rest of the community. And we, we progressively invest like $100,000 in each person, in each team building as the program goes on until they get out the other end where we help them get their fund, the first funding from the external market. And we're really trying to do this in like, as you say, we're not interested in reaching crypto-aware developers. Like they, they're already here. We're re- really interested in reaching Web2 developers. So if you just go to like build, you can get on board with that. And it's, it's made for people that are not crypto-aware. So that's what I would say on the weaknesses front. I mean, for sure, to be clear, there are like rough edges. It's early stage technology nonetheless, but I think you're, you accurately summarized it, that essentially the, the building blocks of the stack are now there. To your second question, I'm afraid I've forgotten it. Sorry. Can you restate, please? When, when, does, when does Web3 become like the default? Uh, the model? default. But that's a fascinating question. I would say the first thing that comes to mind is, well, will it ever be the default fundamentally? Because Web3 is a way of building a certain type of thing. It's not clear that every application should be a perm web app. I think like many, many, many of them should. But plausibly, you could see that, you know, I don't know, if you, you have a like cupcake factory or something like this, and it's got a website, I don't know that that has to be a plumb web app necessarily. So I think there will still be stuff that people want to use the centralized web for like that. And I, and I think, you know, there's this question around uh, monetization strategy. So should every company be a DAO? Well, it doesn't seem obvious to me that there are advantages for absolutely every company to be a DAO. Well, I mean, you know, this sort of fundamental advantage that it's just a electronic company, if you will. Like it, so everything is just kind of bureaucratically faster and it's adjudicated by code, which, which is helpful, but it's not like, what you say? That in itself is not world-changing. That's an evolution, not a revolution. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. But if you want to build a censorship-resistant web application, there is nowhere to go on the Web2 space that will actually do that. You see people trying to, and they go to like alternative web hosts and all this type of stuff. That's not going to work. You cannot build an application where you don't have to trust the person running that application in Web2, fundamentally, because the protocols are set up to connect you to a place, and that place has to be run by a person. Well, on PubWeb, it doesn't work like that. The protocol says, okay, there is an identifier out here, and that identifier is many, many different places. There are many people that are incentivized to store it and replicate it for you. Yeah, we can go find it for you. So it's a really different model. There's sort of revolutionary stuff, I would say, which I'm not sure absolutely everything will ever fall in that category, but the evolutionary stuff, like, wouldn't it just be better if companies were DAOs? I guess that's probably true. I mean, this, this conversation, frankly, could go on a long time. It's a lot of intricacy and detail. <laughs> gotcha. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and, and congratulations on a really successful Web3 project. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I see it as just about getting started, but yeah, certainly the engine is going now. It's exciting. Thanks for having me on.